You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If, uh, if you weren't in the room earlier when I introduced myself, my name's Sam. I, I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, I, I've, I've actually been away the last few weeks. So if you are new to our church, we may not have had a chance to meet yet. But I had an opportunity to get away for a few weeks with my family, which is just such a rich time together to kind of disconnect. Actually, most of the time away, I, I had my phone off and my computer off. And so if you sent me uh, an email or a text and you haven't heard back yet, I'm so sorry. And I'm slowly working my way through it over this last few days. I will get back to you very soon. But, um, but really good to be back. There is nothing like being together as church family. And uh, just even this morning, hearing us singing out those anthems of praise but the resurrection of Jesus, just the voices, the hearts joining together as one. It is just so good. So good to be the church together. Love it so much. Well, we are in uh, the middle of a series that we've been in for several months, working through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me right out of the gate to uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. And um, I'll just say, this sermon from Jesus it has quite literally changed the course of human history, especially in the West. In so many ways, no speech or sermon or piece of written literature has had a greater effect on the world as a whole than this inaugural speech from Jesus, where he lays out this vision, this, and we've been walking through it kind of week by week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, where he lays out this vision of what it looks like when the gospel gets a hold of a person. What it looks like when we begin to actually live out our Christian faith as, as both individuals, but also as a community, together as the people of God. Uh, he, he talks about you know, what it looks like to, to actually live out our faith. And, and Jesus will go on to say that, that my followers, if you're to follow me, it's literally going to change everything for you. It's going to change the way that you treat the poor. It's going to change the way that you think about sexuality and marriage Jesus would say that, that, that my way of life is going to push back on your passion for revenge. Like if somebody hurts you or does something against you, uh, the, the way that you treat your enemies, those who offend you. And, and here's where he's going to go today. Jesus is going to say that the gospel, that is even going to have impact on, it's going to challenge the way that we think about our wealth and money and the accumulation of possessions. And so with that being said, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Like I said, Matthew chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow along on the screen. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, I would imagine that, that many of us in this room are aware that in 2008, there was a massive, like a global economic crisis. 
Some of you in this room were probably deeply affected by what would, would, would commonly be referred to as the Great Recession. But what you might not know about that, that time in, in 2008 and 2009 is that the, the, the downturn in the economics and, and the stock markets and all that was 2008, there was this tragic string that followed, a, a string of, of suicides. Suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected leaders who for one reason or another decided to take their lives. There's a large number of them over a short amount of time. So incredibly devastating. And the question that I've been grappling with as I saw those stats and saw those names and, and, and this decision that they had made is why did the economic crisis of 2008 not only take for some their livelihood, but for some actually take their life, have these devastating effects on, 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 on these people? Like, these weren't the people, the ones who were at the very top. These weren't the ones who, who were likely going to be out on the streets because of the crisis. These weren't the ones who were probably not going to be able to put food on their table. These were the people at the very top of the food chain. Why would they be so deeply affected, so much so, that it seemed better to end it all than to deal with life that would come after 2008? You know, what is it about money that has this grip on a person that without it, it can almost feel like life itself loses its meaning. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter six that we just read together today, they speak right to the heart of these questions. See, money and wealth, they have this innate ability to, to define us, to give us a sense of self-worth and, and identity. And when things are going well with our money and with our work and with these things, when, when everything's moving up and to the right, when things are good and you're progressing and moving forward and taking ground, growing your net worth and, and your equity, when things are good, you may never actually realize the, the, the hold, the power, the grasp that money has on you. But when the tides turn, when they shift, and you're no longer the one on top, when, when something like 2008 happens and the stock markets crash, or when you lose that job that forces you to move out of your dream home, or, or an unforeseen pandemic hits and, and has devastating effects on your business, or, or the interest rates push you out of the housing market, or heaven forbid you lose everything you worked so hard to buy, worked so hard to get, then what? Money and wealth can so easily become our identity. And it's not only money that can do this to us, that can have this kind of effect. For many people, it's, it's power, it's popularity, it's being successful or seen as successful, having influence, beauty, having the biggest and the best. And being king of, king of the hill, I, I think it's, it, it's fun for a while. Like being the guy at the top certainly has its perks, or at least I'd imagine it does, be it fancy cars or jets or homes on multiple continents or maybe eating the best food made by five-star chefs, the best in the world. But when your identity is wrapped up in that number that you see in your checkings account, or in that brand new car that you spent years kind of striving to, to buy, or, or, or maybe caught up in the way that your body looks, or the number of followers you have on a given social media platform, then when it goes, when it rusts, when the numbers do drop, when the deal falls through, when the wrinkles creep in and take over your face and body, which inevitably they will, when your treasure goes, so goes you. And that's why Jesus opens this section of the sermon by saying, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because treasure on earth, because money, because stuff, it can so easily control you. It has this power. It can get so entangled in our sense of self and the way that we feel about our worth. And if we're not careful, in one way or another, if money is your king, it will destroy you. 
I want to unpack three questions that I think Jesus answers in the text that we just read together. And some work from Tim Keller was incredibly helpful in framing these ideas. So if I say anything smart or profound, assume I, I learned it from him. But there's three questions that I want to answer about money and its power that it can have over us. Number one, how does money gain power over us? Number two, why is it that money gains power over us? And then number three, how can we break free from money's power? How, why, and then how can we break free from money's power? Let's look at those one at a time. The first, how does money gain power over us? There's this interesting illustration right in the center of that section of scripture that we read together. And quite honestly, when I first read through this text and was trying to make sense of it all, I wasn't sure that that illustration in the middle actually fit with these other verses. Like the first verse is so obviously about money and then the conclusion is clearly talking about money. But then there's this illustration smack in the middle where Jesus starts talking about the eye and about darkness and if you're wandering around and, and all this kind of stuff. It's good, it's compelling, but what does it mean and how does it fit with this, the rest of this conversation about wealth? Here's what Jesus says, verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Here's the essence of what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you're in a room and there's light in the room like there is in this room. Or I'm an early riser, so I, I really like waking up before the sun rises. And oftentimes I wake up, it's really dark in our home. The lights are all out. There's no light coming in the windows. And I love it when the blinds are open. And, and over time, over that few moments, it just gets brighter and brighter and brighter as the sun rises and comes up in the morning, so bright with the golden sun shining into the windows. And so if your eyes are working and light starts to peer through, then you start to see things that you couldn't, previously see in the dark, to make your way through a space and a room without bumping into things or stubbing your toes, which I do far too often, or, or stepping on things. That being said, if your eyes are not working, then even though there's lots of light all around you, the sun may, may rise and be peeking in the windows. But in a sense, if your eyes aren't working, then the rest of your body is still kind of wandering around in darkness. Your hands and your feet don't have retinas. And so even though the sun is out and the room is, is bright in reality, Without an eye that can see it, sunshine or not, you're still wandering around in the darkness. Okay, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I think that Luke chapter 11 and 12 helps us to make sense of this illustration from Jesus, where in those, those verses, he's sharing a very similar thing. He's talking about money, he's talking about wealth and the power that wealth and money can have over us. He uses a very similar illustration where he talks about darkness and the eye. And then here's what he says in verse 15 of chapter 12. Jesus says, watch out. He says, watch out for greed. Luke 12, verse 15. It says, then he said to them, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. And here's what I think he's saying, is that greed, that the accumulation of wealth and lots of material stuff, this, this desire and this dependency on money, it has the effect of, of blinding you spiritually. It distorts the way that we see things. Greed can actually make us as blind to what's going on in our own hearts to our own motives and what's going on beneath the surface. See, see I may be wrong, but, but I don't think that many of us would say that we struggle with greed, that we're materialistic, because most of us know someone who is way more far gone than we are, has accumulated way more wealth and has more stuff and fancy toys and all those sorts of things. So compared to that person, I live like a really simple, low-key kind of life. I can always find someone who's greedier than me, but Jesus says, watch out. It's interesting, and again, I learned this from, from Tim Keller, but he says greed, 
Greed is different than a lot of other sins. Like Jesus doesn't say, watch out, you might be committing adultery. No, like if you're committing adultery, you know. You don't wake up one day and say, whoa, you're not my wife. <laughs> like if you're committing adultery, you know that you're committing adultery, but about greed and, and, and these sorts of things, Jesus says, watch out because it's sneaky. It sneaks in and it hides itself beneath the layers. And there's so many different areas of our lives where, where this can show up. In our day and age, it's almost the water that we're swimming in, this kind of culture that's fueled by greed and consumerism. Quite literally, most businesses are relying on a culture of consumerism in order to hit their daily sales targets. Every single ad and commercial and billboard, it's forming and shaping us, forming our desires, the things we want. I see it in myself. You know, for example, I, I am so quick to rationalize why I need the newest iPhone. <laughs> I, I, I've been thinking about getting an iPhone for several months now already, and I have a, an iPhone. It's sitting in the front row over here. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not cracked. It's not broken. But here's what I tell myself. It's kind of getting a little bit slow. <laughs> I think I need a faster operating system. Or also, the newest iPhone, it has three cameras on the front. And so the kind of quality of video that, like, why do I need cinema quality video of my kids and dog? <laughs> like no one is gonna be watching videos of my family on a big screen, at least not videos that I shoot. But, I, but these are the stories that I tell myself that, that I need it, that this is gonna make my life so much better. But what could I do if I spent that $1,400 that I was so ready to drop on an iPhone that I don't need, on helping a neighbor that was struggling? Or gosh, paying the rent for, for a, a single mom and her child who's struggling. Or, or giving to a project in Mexico or in a country overseas that we're on about as a church. But I tell myself that I need these things. I justify it with the stories that I tell myself. And before I know it, I'm blind to my own greed. Because everyone else is doing it. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with buying a new phone. But do you hear what I'm saying? We can so easily be blind to what's going on in our heart. Materialism at its finest. Or what about in business? Greed can show up in all sorts of different ways. For example, a lot of time, greed creeps in when, in the ways that we do business by, by just not, us not asking important questions, looking to get the cheapest price on, on this item or that item, no matter what the cost, and without looking into to what effects this purchase order might have on, on communities or people overseas. Like, I do not think the majority of business people are saying, like, I want to buy products from from stuff made by children or from sweatshops, or intentionally working with companies and factories that are putting toxins that flow into water in, in Bangladesh. But, but we just don't ask the questions. We turn a blind eye because if, if I can just get my margins down, then I'll have that much more profit. And, and so we close our eyes and we drive down the cost. Our greed can blind us. And the hardest part is that most of the time, we don't even realize that it's happening. Greed, ha greed has blinded us. We don't even realize what's going on in our hearts. And it doesn't help that, that, that it's the most socially acceptable sin of the batch. At least I think so. And, and in our culture, it's almost celebrated as a virtue to put yourself first, to think about yourself first. But Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard against all sorts of greed because wealth and material possessions will make all sorts of promises to you about fulfillment and what life could look like if you had this thing or you had this stuff, but it will all fall short. Okay, so that's how money gains power over us. It blinds us. But why does it happen? Why does money and stuff and this striving for more, 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 why does it gain this sense of power and control over so many people? 
Well, Jesus says it like this, that, that where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. In other words, at the center of every human heart is this longing for something. A sense that if I had this, then it would all be worth it. That, that if I had this, then, then I would be worth it. And once your soul desires something, treasures something, places something in this, this place of highest esteem, then you'll pay any price for it. Because it's the only thing that feels worth it, is getting this thing or, or achieving this dream or getting to this place. And that thing... It can, take, it can take different forms in everybody's life. It, it can look different to each unique individual person. For some, maybe the, the dream, maybe the goal, the, uh, the, the, the treasure is owning a home. Or maybe it's, it's climbing the corporate ladder and getting that position at work. Or maybe it's becoming a pro athlete or getting into a certain university or, or finding that dream guy or girl that you spend the rest of your life with or starting that business or maybe retirement. Maybe that's the target. Maybe that's the treasure. Most of the time, the treasures are, are not bad things. They're not bad in themselves. Even money itself is not evil. It's dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous to us in our spiritual lives, but it isn't evil. It's when those things, when those things become ultimate to us, when we begin to long for them, when we obsess over them, when we give up anything and everything to get them, when we pursue that thing at the expense of our families, or we throw aside our ethics to get them, when we, when we place them as God in our lives, that's where the issue lies. Because we're pursuing these things that are incapable of filling us. Canadian theologian and thought leader Jim Carrey, <laughs> I'm just kidding, he's not a theologian. He said this, he said, I wish that everyone could be rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that it's not the answer. See, the truth is, any treasure but Jesus will disappoint will underwhelm. If not at the start, it will soon enough as it begins to rust and, and it wears out. And then it's on to bigger and better things, younger and faster. It's this nonstop treadmill, this nonstop hamster wheel. And, 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 and there can be moments of illusion where it feels like, no, I think I have actually arrived. I think I'm content. I think I have everything that I want. But then you realize that what you actually want is just around the corner, just a little bit further. And so this, this process goes on and on and on. Hey, every treasure that we long for, every earthly treasure, insists that you give up everything for it. Keep going. Keep pushing. You're, you keep working. The fulfillment you're after is just beyond this next turn. Every treasure that we long for, be it wealth or power or popularity or comfort or sex appeal, it insists, give up yourself for me. That You die to purchase this thing. But Jesus, he is the only treasure that, that actually died to purchase us. That died to purchase you. Anything else you treasure will say, give everything up for me. Commit everything to me, die for me. But if you make Jesus your supreme value, if you treasure him, See, he's the only one, he's the only treasure who says, no, I died for you. The longing of your heart will only be filled when he is your treasure. When you don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and, and these sorts of things uh, take over and, and they wear out. No, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that sounds great. Treasure Jesus. But like, how do you actually do that? How do you treasure him? What does that even mean to treasure Jesus? Well, to start, think about what Jesus did with his treasure. Before coming to earth, Jesus had everything. 
He was in need of nothing. He was ultimate security. He was the son living in perfect harmony with, with the father and with the spirit. But when he, became, when he came to earth and went to the cross, when he, he came for us, he gave up everything. He gave it all up. He gave up his life. And you only die for something that's incredibly valuable to you. Jesus must have looked at us and said, I'll do whatever it takes to get them. I'll do whatever it takes to save them. Even going to the pit of hell would be worth getting them and saving them because they are my treasure. And Isaiah 53 talks about this. It says that when he saw the result of his suffering, that Jesus was was satisfied, that the cross, that the agony, the pain, it was all worth it to him because he received his treasure. 1 Peter 2.9 says it like this, speaking of the church. It says, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, God's purchased possession. See, you are his treasure. And unless you know that he's willing to to lose everything, all of his treasure so that you could be his treasure, unless you know that that's the way that Jesus looks at you, that he feels towards you like that, that if I could have them, anything is worth it. Anything would be worth saving them. If you know that you're treasured like that, that God cares about you in that way, it will absolutely free you from, from the grip, from the power of greed, from the power of money, to actually know that you are deeply loved by God. Jesus would give everything for you. So how do you break free from the power of money and wealth and this endless pursuit of more, 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 more? It starts with the gospel. Understanding who you are in Jesus, that you are so deeply treasured by him, that you are his prize. And then allowing that to shape you and your desires, just responding to his love. Instead of treasuring these things that can never fill Instead of being enamored by, by the things of this world, the things the world has to offer, the empty, empty promises of fulfillment, treasuring him, receiving the treasure that will never disappoint, the treasure where neither moth nor rust can destroy, the thieves can't break in and steal. But it starts by finding your source of identity in Jesus, knowing the way that he feels about you, and then allowing that to shape the way that you feel about him. Okay, I want to look at some signs some signs that, that, that can help us to know whether or not money does have a grip on our lives, okay? The first, the first thing that I want to look at is, is the way that we treat rich people, or the way that we view rich people. When you encounter someone that has a lot of money, how does it make you feel? How's your heart in that situation? You know, a lot of people, when they encounter a rich person, they start to, to feel a lot of envy, and, and they start to, start to want what that person has, and, and, and it can really rob us of a sense of contentment, and we can be so dissatisfied with our own life, always comparing to those who have a little bit more or a lot more. Other people look at rich people, and they feel this sense of disdain. Like, look at that person and everything they have, and all their fancy toys and, and, and these things that they buy, buying anything they want. You almost feel superior to rich people. Critiquing every decision. Oh, if I had that much money, I would never spend it on that. I would never do that with it. Almost this sense of disdain. Hey, hey, if you, if you look down on those who have money, if you position yourself as higher than them looking down, it, it actually shows a lack of spiritual wealth. That you actually don't fully understand the spiritual inheritance. That It probably means that money still does have a hold on you. See, when we understand the way that Jesus feels about us, that every single thing we have is a gift from him. When we understand that, that, that when, we, when we treasure him, then, then you can be around great wealth and, and appreciate nice things, but it doesn't phase you. The gospel changes the way that you look at material stuff and especially how you interact with those who are wealthy. 
Another sign that you're free from money is by looking at the way that you treat poor people. Do you respect poor people? And not thinking of them as like a charity case, as people who need me in order to help them, but looking at the poor as image bearers of God. And those who who I can actually learn something from people, no matter how much money they have or make, as people who are worthy of the same respect and friendship and, and, and as anyone else, dignity as anyone else. How's your heart towards poor people? It's so easy to feel superior. And even if we don't say it out loud, to think of ourselves as, as, as better in a sense, having this better work ethic or, or, or be, we're better with money or, or forgetting that they didn't start where I started, with the same home and family of origin and opportunities and education. And if, and, and if I was born into the same situation that they were born into, maybe I would be in a similar place. I am not better than them. I didn't do anything to earn the, the gifts and the abilities and the brain that God has, has given me. God put those inside me. And even being born in the, 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 the side of the world that I was born into, that wasn't my choice, that was his doing. If we look at the poor with contempt or a sense of superiority, there's a good chance that money still has a hold on us. That we're seeing the world through this distorted lens of materialism and greed. See, the gospel reminds us that we are that poor man that we were destined for destruction, but God, because of his great love for us, came for us and made a way. Thirdly, when we've been freed from money, we become radically generous. In verse 22, when, when Jesus is talking about the eye, he says, when your eye is healthy, and that word healthy that Jesus uses in the text, it can also be translated from the original Greek as, as generous. So you can read those words as, when, when the eye is generous, your body will be full of light. See, those who are in sync with God and his kingdom, they have eyes of generosity, always looking to give what they have to other people, always looking for an opportunity to be a blessing to another person. They, they see their homes and their tables and their wallets and their stuff as means of partnering with God in his renewing work. I think it's an interesting question to, to think about how much should we give away? Like as the people of God, if we do want to live a generous life, how much should we, is there a rule of life, like, or, or a rule to that? Like, you know, a lot of people point in scripture to 10%. That 10% is a good amount that you should give away. But I like the way that one theologian talked about it. He said 10% is actually not the point with generosity. 10% is a good rule of thumb, a good way to get started for, for, for the Christian. But the standard is not 10%. The standard is the cross. See, 10% is just, just an example for some Quite honestly, 10% is, is really hard to, to give away, to be able to live and pay rent with, with the income that they have. 10% can feel like a lot. For others, 10% doesn't even make a dent into the income that they're, they're bringing in. It's not about the percentage or all those sorts of things. The idea in Scripture is, is that the standard for the Christian is the cross, the cross of Jesus where he gave up everything for us. It was sacrificial. It cost him something. To be a people marked by generosity, it's not just to give out of our excess, to give over what's left at the end once we've bought everything that we want and, and, and think that we need. No, it's to, to give sacrificially. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, is there a cross in my economic life in the way that I steward my finances? In other words, does the cross and the sacrificial love of Jesus, does it inform the way that I spend my money on a day-to-day basis? Because to follow Jesus with our finances is to live with our hands wide open saying, God, all of this is yours. Use me. 
Use what I have for your kingdom purposes. And as we look at Jesus' teaching all throughout the New Testament, a lot of scholars point out that Jesus actually doesn't condone that his followers own anything. Now, I understand that sounds intense and provocative, and before I lose you, let me explain. Actually, it's a great quote from, from Gregory Boyd. I don't know if you have that on the screen, Minier. This is what, what, oh, what Gregory Boyd, an American theologian, said. He said, Jesus tells us that unless we give up all our possessions, we cannot be a disciple of his. I don't interpret this to mean that we can't legally own anything since most of his disciples he was speaking to continue to earn money and live in houses. But it does mean that we can't consider anything we legally own or any money we legally earn to be our possessions. They belong to God. And as such, we're called to seek his will as to how our wealth should be spent. And one scholar pointed out that, that this way of living, this radical way of generosity, is really what made the early church stand out so much to the world around them. It's what made the, the early church stand out in that first few centuries, their generosity. They gave their wealth so freely, and it made the world around them look in and, and take notice. Like, why? Why are you living this way? There's this ancient letter where a follower of Jesus was explaining to someone who was contemplating faith. This letter was sent unpacking what it means to follow Jesus. And there's this little excerpt that I wanted to share with you, this little quote of what was said in that ancient letter. This person said, we share our table with all, but we don't share our beds with all. And that was so significant in a pagan culture. Because in a pagan culture of the day, in those first few centuries, people were known to be so promiscuous with their bodies, but they were so stingy with their money. But then the early church, the early Christians came along as they were unpacking and learning to follow Jesus through, through what he taught and the way that he said that we were to live. And they became stingy with their bodies, but promiscuous with their money. It was the stark contrast to the culture of the day and it had a profound impact on society. This is why I say that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has profoundly changed the world, changed the course of human history, because when followers of Jesus grasp what it looks like to, to not treasure the things of this world, but to treasure the things of heaven, you know, when Jesus' people actually take his words seriously to, and begin to live out the gospel in every single aspect of their lives, communities are changed. Cities are transformed. The lonely find families the poor are clothed and fed. The sick are cared for. Do you know that the, the, the first people who started hospitals were Christians who were living out the, the, the Sermon on the Mount? The early church was, was also known to take in orphans off the streets when infanticide was legal and people could leave their unwanted babies outside this, the, the city gates. Christians would go and would collect them and would take them into their homes and, and, and treat them as their own children, raise them and clothe them and feed them. This is what it means to store up treasure in heaven, to be concerned about what Jesus is concerned about, to live in a way that is costly and sacrificial, but truthfully, it is the most exhilarating way to live. Not caught up in the rat race and the accumulation of more and more and more stuff. How boring. To just get more and bigger and better, but instead to live a life that brings heaven to earth in our cities in the places where we live. That's the kind of church that we long to be. By God's grace, that's the, the kind of church that we are becoming day by day, year by year, decade after decade, of people who live in such a way that the city around us, like Coquitlam and Port Moody and Port Coquitlam, they say, why does this church do what they do? Why do they live that way? Why do they treat the poor with such dignity? 
Why does my neighbor who's a Christian, why, why are they so quick and willing to, to give when I'm in need or, or to, to help me with my children or whatever the case might be? We want to show the, the extravagant generosity of God and the way that we conduct ourselves and live and be the people of God in this city. Amen? Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.